What is up, Hardwood Knoxers? I am Dan Valley, coming at you, as always, fueled by caffeine, pop punk, and lots and lots of this podcast. Hoops, Hardwood Knox in general, lots of fun. Also coming at you without my fantabulous co-host, Adam Prommel, this time, or a guest, because some plans fell through, but I felt like dropping a podcast, the second one this week. Anyway, I know all of you are just waiting for two. Before we get started, just want to remind, implore, beg, plead with everyone to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us wherever you get your podcast. That is the best way to help us, is to subscribe and download every episode. Also, one of the best ways to help us. Please head over to iTunes, throw us that five-star rating, also write a review. Those help us out a ton in the charts. It doesn't matter if you use iTunes or not to listen to your pods. If you have access to it, we ask that you use it. Also a huge help, word of mouth, shout outs on Twitter, retweeting our promotions, helping us bump them, just telling randos about us or people you know about us that really that really helps. We are a pleasantly sub mediocre NBA podcast covering the entire association at large. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. You can also find us on YouTube, youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox. We will come right up there. So subscribe to that channel and then follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox, big things in the works here as it comes to exclusives. I know I've taken forever to work on it, but we are still pushing out the content at least two pods per week on average, unless something comes up. Today, I thought it would be fun as we lead into the weekend and we've pretty much wrapped up week three of the NBA season or like two and a half weeks at this point, I guess. Uh, I'm going to relay a stat that I'll be watching for every single team uh, the rest of the year, or just something to track. It could be early season noise. These are just numbers that I find interesting. They're not all supposed to be these, you know, big picture ref referendums or harbingers. Sometimes it might be the biggest problem identifying with the team. Sometimes it might just not be the biggest problem. Spoiler alert. It won't be the biggest encore problem for the Phoenix Suns. It's just something that I find fascinating or I want to celebrate. But in other cases, it will be, or it'll just be something I'm noticing, picking up on. If you like this podcast, which I will timestamp the ever-living hell out of, maybe we'll make this sort of a you know series that we do a couple times throughout the season. Maybe we'll split up into two pods. The goal here is I'm going to try and not spend too long. I want to get you here out of here in a little bit over an hour. I say over an hour because we have to talk quickly. Maybe I'll go more in depth when, when Adam and I record next about the report that came from ESPN's Baxter Holmes allegations of racism and misogyny within the Phoenix Suns inside Robert Sarver's 17-year tenure as the primary proprietor whatever you want to call him there this was the report that was reported on about coming out because that's we hear about news before the news actually comes out I still think it was fucked up that this story was scooped in that vein I think it gave the Suns more time to prepare for it, even if they were, or I say they, but even though if Sarver was sort of tripping over himself, I recommend you just check out the report. I mean, there are the stories in there are just there. You were expecting just terrible, atrocious, no good, really bad, immoral, fucked up shit. And it was just even worse after reading it. I'm not going to go through the specific events. They're all in there. They are awful. It sounds like there's been a toxic culture in there. These allegations need to be taken seriously. The NBA has launched an investigation into the Suns officially. We will see what comes in that. Players and uh, the Suns players and Monty Williams were asked about it before their win over the Houston Rockets on Thursday night. Or excuse me, Monty Williams was asked before the players were asked after. The general theme was that they want to wait for the investigation to unfold before they're going to comment any further. Devin Booker did note that Earl Watson 
former Suns head coach who is on the record in this story, um, is one of his guys. He called them that he would consider him a trusted source. Uh, we know that Devin Booker and other players within Phoenix wanted Earl Watson as the head coach. And when you look at just the circumstances or the alleged circumstances under which Earl Watson was dismissed within this piece, just an absolute fucking disaster. And if even like 10% of this stuff was true, and I'm not saying that less than that would be true or that it's only 10%, it's pretty damning. I think what makes this difficult, and again, I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's important, but I've had enough of you know the people that look like me, the white dudes, just sort of opining on this. Uh, this seems different from what happened with the Clippers or, or even the Hawks in, in that these allegations, to, to as far as we know, they've not been on recording. And so it's not going to be as cut and dry for the NBA to make a decision here. I know a lot of people think that, Robert Sarver will be forced to, to sell the team. Uh, it's going to depend on one, the, how they determine like how the, the validity of these allegations and how many are they going to be able to confirm? Uh, it's just sources in this case. I don't know if that hearsay is going to impact whether he's forced out or not. My guess would be that he won't be unless the players on the Suns take a stand sort of like, what happened with the Clippers and Donald Sterling, because I do wonder if Donald Sterling would have been forced out um, had the Clippers just basically said, like, we're not going to play for him is what it came down to in that instance. I hate that the onus comes on to the players then in this respect. A lot of this stuff is predating um, their tenures there. If you look at a Chris Paul, if you look at a Monty Williams, uh, and they've both, or Monty Williams was, he did say that nothing along these lines that Robert Sarver has been accused of when you're looking at racist language, sexist behavior. Uh, he, pant he apparently pants someone. There's a dude in his fifties, I guess was panting an employee, one of his employees at a, at a company event. Monty Williams said that he, to the best of his knowledge, that stuff has not gone on since he's joined the Suns over these past couple of years. So the onus should not fall on him or Chris Paul. At the same time, I just find it very hard to believe that the league is going to enforce or excuse me, force, Robert Sarver to sell the team based on this report when there's just no concrete proof, even though this would be my next point. Um, Baxter Holmes said that ESPN spoke with over 70 sources for this story. And so I'd like people to consider that when you have um, a lot of people that look like myself that are coming out and saying, this is not the Robert Sarver. I know I haven't known him to be racist. Cough, cough, Steve Kerr there. Uh, I think Greg Chap Chapman said something on on twitter as well so you have these males just you know sort of uh commenting on the situation which i mean we're talking about women who you know were, were verbally assaulted here made to feel uncomfortable in in their work environment like that's or if we're having you know a white dude talking about steve curse like i haven't found robert sarver to be racist okay like you're a white dude would you experience racism on behalf of robert sarver no you would fucking not so that is super cringeworthy here. Let if you want, let's let the investigation play out to see what happens. That's fine, but we can't just pretend that seventy sources is this insignificant number. And there was also the report that there are employees who are willing to speak with the league during their investigation to corroborate these things, so long as their employee status is protected. Because one of the complaints within this piece. You know, not complaints. One of the allegations within this piece is that uh, human resources basically functioned as 
Robert, Robert Sarver's own personal police. And you had an HR representative sort of counseling employees off the record on what to do and advising or hoping that they would sue or threaten to sue so that they would get some money if they were fired. This is just, this report is, it's groundbreaking in, in what it alleges. And the extent to which it seems like it was reported, there's no way you can just dismiss it. And the move is not to just come out on Robert Sarver's behalf right now it, let the investigation play out then you're automatically jumping to the event to the defense of of this guy i'm not saying a bunch of people are but there were just people on twitter very easily or even within the piece like you're kind of uh telling on yourself in that regard you also had a, a son's partial like minority um proprietor come out and release a statement i i got the email a ton of other people got the email um from yam nahafi and i apologize if i'm mispronouncing i should have looked that up but he said, I've been made aware of the allegations against Robert Sarver, the managing partner who runs the Phoenix Suns. The conduct he's alleged to have committed has stunned and saddened me and is, and is unacceptable. And so you have him coming out on the record and, and just saying that. Like we, that should just be the reaction where he's, um, I guess, not assuming guilt. Like we're acknowledging this conduct is alleged, but we have to take this seriously. If, if ESPN was talking to over 70 people, the final thing that I'm going to say on this let's be we need to see what the league does and they should be criticized or judged accordingly based on what their reaction is let's not be so quick to pat them on the back for for acting swiftly or something robert sarver has been in this position of power for nearly two decades these stories have apparently been floating around for years i'm sure it took a lot of courage for people to come and speak up now or over the course of these past few months with baxter holmes um, so I'm not saying that this necessarily all should have came out at once and these people should have come forward sooner because I think it's really hard to say that when you're dealing with actual victims in this case. Like this isn't like, you know, this isn't innocent stuff. This is real derogatory shit um, that impacted these people's lives. And there are people that just wanted to get out of the organization altogether. I could imagine it would be be traumatizing. But there's been like this it, it was not it wasn't even a, a poorly kept secret it just wasn't a secret as to how toxic the work culture was in phoenix and if the league is only investigating it now like we after what's happened in dallas what's happened in atlanta what happened with the clippers like they need to do a better job of i guess vetting these guys in the first place however you feel about billionaires i guess i'll keep like if you think that all billionaires are immoral to have to get to that point, like whatever, I'm just saying do a better job of vetting these guys in the first place, but then also kind of monitoring them moving forward. There needs to be a stricter uh, standard to hold these, uh, you know, managing partners to, or just all sorts of minority or majority proprietors of these teams, governors, whatever you want to call them. Um, so that this stuff, this stuff shouldn't be happening and it shouldn't be like kind of sort of known about, and then we're only going to investigate it. Uh, once these just groundbreaking reports are released uh, once every few years at this point, it's not even a few years. How long ago was the Dallas thing? It was like 2018, sort of about 19, less than half a decade ago easily. So that's just where I land on it. We need to see how the investigation plays out, but it would not surprise me if this does not end with Robert Sarver being forced out again, unless we start to see the the players take action or maybe some of the other um, sons as minority uh, partners come in and and kind of force his hand there. And then sort of just to wrap this up, the worst thing that's going to happen to Robert Sarver in all this is he's forced to sell his team and make billions of dollars. That's just, there's just something so, so twisted 
about that. And so we'll obviously be monitoring this story. Um, definitely listen to people of color, to women on this situation. Uh, they're going to have the more important perspective on this because that's going to be a, a demographic of, of gender that's more directly impacted by, by what's saying. And so that's why I'm just cringing when you have all these dudes specifically um, or, or especially white dudes just coming out and saying, this is not the, the Robert server that I know, or, or he's not a racist. I just don't know why that's your, your first impulse from a, a explosive report that spoke with nearly a hundred people and feels like it's going to be fairly easily, easily corroborated what that's actually going to do in terms of consequences. We don't know, but this is a serious thing. These allegations are serious, take them seriously. And let's try and all just watch what we're sent to just don't don't insert yourself into this this story if you don't i'm not even trying to be a lecturer here i don't want to insert myself this isn't performative what we're doing just feel the need to talk about it since it's going on but yeah the i would recommend reading the report um, i don't blame you if you can't stomach it or if you want to vomit if your eyes are going to bleed but this is just uh, nightmarish and i hope that there's a way you know moving just beyond the suns that the league can do a better job of not just reacting to these situations to these cultures to these allegations but doing a better job of preventing them in the first place um, especially from building up again over the course of of two decades kind of a terrible unnatural segue into basketball but we're going to get into real basketball here i'm going to dive right in to the the stat and they're kind of stats plural that I've noticed with every NBA team, but there will be sort of an, an overarching one. We'll begin, we'll go in alphabetical order. We'll begin with the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, what stands out to me for them, and this is coming from someone who picked them to finish second in the East at this point. Could we get the Hawks to shoot more threes? Maybe they, last year they were 18th in three-point attempt rate and 15th in three-point percentage. And, you know, three-point attempt rates, will, you know, just the percentage of their shots that are coming from three for anyone who's not familiar with that. This year, they're 27th in three-point attempt rate and 18th in accuracy. And three-point shooting, I think especially above the break this year, has been down. So it's not like they've been this super just great outside shooting team, but it, it is a difference for them. Um, they are minus 75 on the year from beyond the arc. That's minus 8.33 points per game. That's the third worst three-point differential in the league behind only the Oklahoma City Thunder. And of course, the Phoenix Suns, where theirs seems more to have to do with cold shooting on their pop part, plus really hot shooting on um, their opponents' part, where it feels like there's some luck there. With the Hawks, when you dig really into the data, it does not feel like their opponents are getting super lucky on their their three point attempts. So I would like to see them just just take more. Let's move on to the Boston Celtics. This is how quick we're going to run through it. Boston is imploding apparently marcus smart wants the ball more on offense even though his own shooting percentages won't uh support that i think boston i don't think my i'm just gonna say boston needs to acquire a real floor general at this point and it's you know i guess easy to look back on well what if they had kemba now kemba wasn't the player that they thought what didn't have the impact they thought he was going to have i don't know if he's going to be the floor general that we're talking about here but boston is 29th in point scored per possession after an opponent makes a shot. So when they're just inbounding the ball, to me, that signifies that it's 0.94 points per possession. This is per unpredictable. Um, only Houston is worse in those situations. So that's for perspective. Talk about a team that could use someone other than a Kevin Porter Jr. to get them into their offense. You just really dig into the data with Boston too. And Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum have been their only competent pick and roll ball handlers. They only have four 
um, players that have run at least 10 pick and rolls this season, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Dennis Schroeder, and I think Marcus Smart's on there. I'm surprised that Peyton Pritchard didn't make that cut when I was looking on, on NBA.com. But you combine that ranking, 29th in point score per possession after an opponent makes a shot, with a bottom 10 offensive rebounding rate and then just bottom five in the frequency with which your shot attempts come at the rim. That's how you get to having a bottom 10 offense right now. They're actually getting to the free throw line more than I would expect them to for a team that doesn't put a ton of pressure on the rim, but that's just going to be something they either need to address or hope that Jason Tatum continues to not only starts making more shots, but continues to improve as a playmaker. I think he's a plus playmaker for his position, even though his assist numbers are down this year. We also need guys to hit shots to rack up some assists. These are some random stats. For, move on to the Brooklyn Nets. I don't want to say they're random. I'm not going to focus on James Harden or how hot Kevin Durant has been or Joe Harris not being able to score from two. A couple of things that stood out. The Nets' offense has just been average when you look at the points scored per possession. Some fun facts on this. LaMarcus Aldridge is shooting 81.9% on long twos. Those are twos from 14 feet to the three-point line from cleaning the glass. 18 of 22. I found that mind-blowing. Now, Blake Griffin is shooting 6 of 17 at the rim, 35.3%. 35.3% at the rim. He's not the same player. You could say that's not a ton of frequency, but about 41% of his shot attempts are coming at the rim. That's right in line with his average since 2017-2018. This would by far and away be a career-low field goal percentage at the rim for him. It was previously 55%, and he's only converted 60% up below 60% once. It was that season, so every other year has been above 60 there should be some normalization there, but man, talk about just the way that the complexion of Blake Griffin's athleticism and then just overall game has changed. Six of 17 at the rim is, is pretty flipping terrible. Speaking of the rim, the Charlotte Hornets, they are, this is more, some of these I should have mentioned are going to be low hanging fruit. This is one of them. I'm just curious to see if they can reverse this trend or, or if the Hornets are going to try and acquire a big at the deadline that would help them. They're 30th in um, field goal percentage allowed at the rim, 70.9%. That is incredibly high. Um, they're also 27th in opponent shooting percentage from floater range between four and 14 feet. Uh, opponents are shooting 45.4% from there. There could be some luck in both of these instances, but you have Mason Plumley really as your only true big. He's allowing opponents to shoot 67.3% at the rim. He has contested more shots at the rim than anyone else on this team. Can you guess who is second? There's no one here with me. It's Kelly Oubre Jr. has contested the second most shots at the rim for this team. Of the 68 players in the league who have defended at least 25 shots at the rim, Oubre is 67th in opponent field goal percentage allowed at 81.5%. That's an astronomical number. I'm not putting this all on him, but it has to do with the makeup of Charlotte's roster. Um, they have been pretty good at defending the rim, or opponents have been pretty crappy at hitting shots, however you want to put it, when Washington and Bridges are on the front line. I don't, the, the sample sizes here just aren't huge to begin with. And Washington has missed time already this season. Um, they could try and go to just some units with Miles My, Bridges at the five. We've seen just a couple of those this year. I don't think the solution is going to be on their roster. And if you want to evade having, they have a bottom five defense right now. Something's going to need to give here. I don't know if there's someone that they can, will be available at the trade deadline that, um, they can go out and acquire a Nerlens Noel might be someone who could help this team, but the Knicks are also trying to win. So are they actually going to give him up? And I mean, finding a reserve big shouldn't be too hard. I think more so this makes you second guess like their decision to not go harder after addressing this position in a um, in free agency when they were going to have cap space to work with. I think their offseason by and large overall was just 
fine. But now you're in a situation where you, you desperately need you know, someone, anyone here. And you can even, they, they could go for the swing defense trade. Like Miles Turner would be great for this team. But if you don't want to give up a ton of assets, because you don't know if you're like this fringe contender already make real noise in the East. When you look at their offense, you might suggest that they are perhaps you don't want to make that type of a trade right now, in which case, you know, I guess, look, you could probably find a reserve big somewhere. I'm just, there was well, which is the first thing I threw out there. I don't know who else is like Derek favors is going to help. If someone will be ready and available. I don't think you roll the dice on Obama in advance of restricted free agency. He's also been playing a lot of time with Wendell Carter jr. I don't know how much Robin Lopez would help you. I promise I'm not just naming uh, magic bigs here. I don't think Nurkic, even though he is, he's pretty good hands on defense. That's not someone you look to target. He's coming up on free agency for them, for them too. I don't, you know, you look at an Alex Leonard, Tristan Thompson, those guys aren't going to move the needle. I doubt Sacramento looks to move Rashawn Holmes this season. So there are, I, Jakob Pertl would be interesting, but I just don't think that that's someone who's going to elevate what they need most. Um, still something definitely to monitor there for them. Moving on to Chicago. This is fun. DeMar DeRozan's team is on pace to be better on defense with him in the game for the first time since 2014, 2015, and just the third time of his career. Chicago's defensive rating right now improves by 20.5 points per 100 possessions when DeRozan's on the court. That's clearly not a DeRozan thing. He's played a bunch of minutes with at least two of Alex Caruso, um, Javante Green, and Lonzo Ball on the court. You can throw Patrick Williams into there as well the minutes with him and there have not been a ton but where you have tony bradley on the court instead of Vooch, the the bulls have just straight killed teams uh in those stretches bradley not has not been the most impactful player but opponents are shooting just three of 16 at the rim against him i just found that fascinating because this entire bull season is is so bizarre because everyone expected them to be not just not great on defense, but pretty bad. And as I record this, they're fourth in points allowed per possession, fifth at forcing opponent turnovers, fifth in opponent effective field goal percentage. They don't even even foul a ton, so they're forcing all these turnovers with without fouling. I'm curious to see whether it's sustainable, but traditionally, like DeMar DeRozan's teams have been absolutely slaughtered when he's on the court defensively, and this is going to be the first time since 2014, 2015 that they're not. I would expect the the differential to normalize at least somewhat, but let's see if it sort of stays above water at all for the for the entire year. And that that really just goes to the whole Bulls offense in general. And the other reason to note this is just like, yeah, Chicago's up to eighth in offensive efficiency overall. But when you look at their starting lineup, uh, they had, excuse me, when Patrick Williams was healthy, like that starting unit, with with ball with DeRozan with Zach Levine and Vooch like it's been really bad offensively so far this year um when you sub in Caruso for Patrick Williams it does get a lot better but this team was supposed to have an offensive identity and right now I mean we're eight games into the season which is 10 percent of the season they have a better defense than they do offense I'm just I know their schedule was light to start I just don't think that's something anyone would have predicted so I am definitely monitoring that um Cleveland Cavaliers Low-hanging fruit here, I would say. Looking at the Lowry marketing, Evan Mobley, Jared Allen front court, they've played 284 possessions together. The Cavs have a 97.9 offensive rating, which is the ninth percentile during um, those reps, but a 99.7 defensive rating, which would be the 89th percentile. So they're still losing these minutes overall. I'm just curious whether the defense is sustainable. They're giving up a 36.2 offensive rebounding rate um, when those three are on the court. I would argue having looked at some of this because I was just curious why that number was so high. It seems because you have Jared Allen and Evan Mobley just so capably 
switching one through five, basically, and contesting so many shots that they're just not around the rim when they need to be. Opponents are also shooting 55.8% at the rim, which is absurdly low, and 29.6% from three when those three are on the court. I would expect there to be some regression here, but I think for those like myself who really criticize the idea of having Mark as your, your small forward, he's given you at least some energy on defense, even when his offense hasn't been going, which has been quite often this year. So that's good. Um, the lineup, those three, when you play with Garland and Rubio, they've straight annihilated opponents. Again, terribly small sample size, but the offense has looked a lot better through those stretches. Something maybe Cleveland wants to consider going to more, even when they're at full strength. I, I don't know, but I if they have a sub 100 off uh, defensive rating with those three, with Mobley out and marketing on the court in general all year, kudos to, to Cleveland there, but you got to find a way for the, the offense to get nudged up. And I, I think it can. Larry Marketing is going to shoot better. Um, and I just think, you know, you have Darius Garland, who's had some up and down moments, but I've actually really enjoyed watching him this year, especially his his passing. Colin Sexton should get a little bit better too. So there's a path clearly to being better on offense than sort of this dungeon low offensive rating. It's just the defense I'm curious about. There has to be some luck caked into these opponent shooting percentages. The Dallas Mavericks. Fun fact, this is not a Kristaps Porzingis stat. How about that? There's a Luka Doncic stat. There's a lot we could focus on here, but something that I've sort of found fascinating, it felt aesthetically, without digging the numbers, that they were going to Luka in the post more, like not as a means to capitalize on mismatches, just to go to him in the post. So I looked it up last year, 6.6% of Luka's offensive touches came via post-ups. He averaged 1.09 points per possession in those situations, 84th percentile. Great, grand, wonderful. This year, 11.7% of Luka's plays have come as post-ups. That's a, that's a huge bump. Um, you know, near, not nearly double, really, have come the frequency with which he's post up is nearly doubled. And now he's averaging 0.77 points per possession. That's the 28th percentile. But we could go through the it's early caveat again and all that. I think at this point that should be self-explanatory, that that's the default here as we realize it's still kind of early. If they're not using it as a means to capitalize on mismatches, I don't know why you, you need to do it. You're having Luca go in the post a lot of times against the other team's best defender. And so that just seems a little wonky to me. Something to keep an eye on, as is the rest of the Dallas Mavericks offense at large. Fun fact, before his back injury, Kristaps Porzingis was averaging 0.5 points per possession as post-ups, and he was not posting up more often, but I would just get rid of those altogether. Dallas's offense, major disappointment. Filled throughout garbage time last year, they were eighth in points scored per possession per cleaning the glass. This year, so far, they are 26th through eight games. So that, that's you have a lot of stuff to watch there. The Denver Nuggets... How can we focus on anything other than Michael Porter Jr.? If you want to focus on the bench, that's fine too. But I think what's going to speak more volumes about this team ceiling is not how all the reserves are playing on offense, but what can Michael Porter Jr. do for you when Jamal Murray's not healthy? Uh, last year, 28.3% of his field goal attempts were classified as open, where the defender was between four and six feet away. He posted a 64.8 effective field goal percentage combined efficiency for twos and threes for anyone who might not know that this year, 36.4% of his attempts have come and been defined as open with a defender between four and six feet away. He has a 41.7 effective field goal percentage uh, on those looks. That is a 23.1 percentage point drop off there. Uh, this to throw in a bonus, Michael Porter Jr.'s true shooting percentage this year with Nicole Jokic on the court, 44.1. It's bad. It gets worse when Jokic isn't on the court. It's at 34.2. 
Um, his touch, his points per touch are just way down. I have to imagine he's going to figure it out because if you, if you watch him and even if you look at the data, yes, roles like not as simple, but it is still sort of streamlined and he's missing a lot of shots as we just evidenced that he was hitting last year. I think he'll eventually come around, but if he doesn't, that's when you have to start asking questions in, in Denver because your defense has been spectacular this year, but your offense without Jokic has just been a dumpster fire. He can't, I mean, he, he is the hub through which you run everything, but he's playing fewer minutes and head coach Michael Malone is talking about like worrying about overworking him probably because his usage on the court is so high because he is so important to that offense. The Detroit Pistons, they might have one of the worst offenses of all time. And I don't want to just continue belaboring that point. So I have one that's a positive, but also sort of a negative. Sadiq Bay leads the team in points per possession as the pick and roll ball handler right now. Um, good for Sadiq Bay. He's at 0.91 points per uh, possession as the pick and roll ball handler. That's not really an astronomically high mark, though. And so it speaks to the Pistons' overall struggles. Um, Killian Hayes. I remain a believer in Killian Hayes. So I want to make that clear. He's shooting um, ever since his first two games of the season where I think he was bageled. He's at like 38% or something like that from three, hovering closer to 40% on more than three and a half attempts per game. When he gets into the lane, I feel like there's a patient guy there who once he sort of figures out his touch or not to rush his own shots, and that goes for some of the attempts he takes on the perimeter as well, I still feel like there's going to be a real NBA player there. However, this season so far, when you look at everyone who has taken at least 20 shots on drives, and there are 88 players who have done this, Killian Hayes ranks 88th in field goal percentage. So dead last. He's four of 21 on drives. That's 19%. Detroit's going to need that number to, to go up. We saw some nice moments on Thursday night. Um, I did watch part of the, the Pistons Sixers game where him and Kate Cunningham looked good together. And there were some really nice Killian Hayes moments, especially in the, the first half. So I still have faith in Killian Hayes, but this Detroit offense is bad. Things are only going to get worse. If Kate Cunningham still needs to figure out a shot. I know people have talked that he's like kind of tweaked his form and it looks a little janky when I was watching the Sixers game, I kind of thought the same thing, but I didn't watch enough of him in college to say that it changed. And I'm just wondering if I'm overthinking it. And when you're watching it in real time, I feel like it could be harder to sort of analyze the form there. So hopefully Killian Hayes, who's shooting 44% at the rim this year, which is up from 39% last year for the Pistons sake, improves as just a finisher and decision maker. If it is any consolation, he's a sub 9% turnover rate as the pick and roll ball handler, more low hanging fruit with the golden state warriors. So when Steph was off the court last year for a total of, you know, almost over 2,200 possessions, Golden State had a minus 8.6 net rating, a 100.8 offensive rating, and a 109.5 defensive rating. This year, in the 172 possessions he's been off the court, so super small sample size, less than 10% of the sample size from last season, the Warriors are actually a plus 5.8. Uh, they have a plus 5.8 net rating. The offense is still not great. 95.3 offensive rating, but an 89.6 defensive rating with opponents shooting a incredibly low 46.3% at the rim, which I imagine won't hold. I guess they have the personnel to better navigate the non-Steph minutes defensively. I still look at this and say, like, you got to figure out a way to be more than one of the worst offensive teams of all time when Steph is off the court. Jordan Poole, probably not being staggered as much. He is a part of some of the most used lineups without Steph, but when he's starting, it 
maybe gets a little bit harder to to stagger them, especially when Kerr's substitution patterns with Curry could be um, so rigid, even when they're trailing in the fourth quarter. But moving on from there, another this is a this is just a random one that I stumbled across. Andre Godala, who I thought was just finished, cooked, done, whatever, has the highest net rating swing on the Warriors because uh, why fucking not? But the the Steph minutes are, are just stretches that you always have to be watching. I'm curious as to if that defense can hold all year or is there a way that they can really nudge up the offense during that time? I think clay, even though he's not known as a shot creator, just having him as on the floor as a, a space or organically nudges you in the right direction there. But again, something to monitor. And as long as you're winning the Steph minutes, it doesn't really matter by how and whether it's luck, whether it's, you know, pure skill, whatever, if you are winning the non Steph minutes, like you're, you're putting yourself in a hell of a position, the Houston Rockets, Went through some front court pairings. I'm not the biggest fan of using Christian Wood as your de facto four. Um, another fun fact, Christian Wood, by the way, this is not the stat, leads the league in points scored per ISO possession. I think he's at 1.41 as I record this, which that's absurdly high and definitely not going to stick. But the Wood-Tice front court pairing, uh, which is the most used one, has a minus 18.7 net rating in 263 possessions. If you're going to play Wood at the four, I like the offensive partnership with Alper and Shang Loon more just because of what he can do as a passer and, and putting the ball on the floor in addition to theoretically spacing the floor. The Rockets have a plus 6.1 net rating in 153 possession, uh, three possessions with those two on the court. Again, incredibly small sample size, but we are talking about a team that's in the bottom five of net rating overall at minus 8.9. So plus 6.1 across any sample size in the triple digits at this point in the season is just something worth uh, exploring more just to kind of the, I wanted to look at wood playing center too. And there have been minutes with that. Um, the Jay Sean Tate, Christian wood minutes when, when Tate your four plus 4.9 net rating in 61 possessions. I like the look of Kenyon Martin jr. At the four with Christian wood, the math does not, there are minus 3.6 net rating in 28 possessions, but those are the four I looked at. So moral of the story here, I think is more, Christian Wood and Alperin Shangun minutes just because it's working and that number's there. But I, I really just like the idea of, of Tate and Wood or maybe when Daniel House is healthy or if they, if they let him play and Wood up front there is something to explore. The Indiana Pacers, they have, and this will not come as a surprise to Pacers Twitter, and we talked about this when I made an appearance on um, when Lockdown Pacers was slumming it one day. Indiana has the worst net rating in the third quarter of any team in the league. Minus 27 Point eight, and it's just it's bad so I, I broke it down by game and so through their first nine games they have outscored an opponent in the third quarter once it was game eight in um when they were at home versus san antonio a game that they won i believe they were plus four points in the third quarter against san antonio but the other eight games they've all been outscored they were minus 20 points in their first game of the season against charlotte in that third quarter Minus 10 against Washington in the third quarter, game two. Um, second night of a back-to-back against Miami, they were minus nine in that game in the third quarter. They were then a minus six in game four against the Milwaukee Bucks, a minus seven in game five during the third quarter against Toronto, minus eight against Brooklyn in game six, and minus two. They almost played Toronto to a dead-even heat in, in game seven during the third, plus four against San Antonio in the third game eight, and then even the, um, the game they won against the Knicks, uh, on November 3rd, their ninth game, they were a minus four during during that time. So there's been cold shooting for them in that third quarter. Malcolm Brogdon, when he's been healthy, has not played great there either. I'm thinking Karis LeVert's return is going to help them through this process as well, and eventually, hopefully, T.J. Warren, perhaps just getting healthy in, in general with their backcourt rotation. 
but yeah, maybe there's some unluck, uh, some just, you know, unlucky crap going on there, but we got to watch those indie third quarters because as of right now, they're really uh, biting them in the butt on to the Los Angeles Clippers only. And look, pick and rolls are not a huge part of the Clippers offense to begin with, but their frequency in the pick and rolls has dropped without Kawhi Leonard. That makes sense. And they didn't really add a, a true floor general. Only the Pistons pick and roll ball handlers are averaging fewer points per possession. The Pistons are at 0.61. The Clippers are at 0.66 right now. They're, they're pick and roll ball handlers. Um, again, not a huge part of their offense. They've actually had more of a slight uptick in ISOs without Kawhi Leonard. I don't, I was good, bad, whatever you want to call it. Just three players on the Clippers are averaging two pick and roll possessions or more per game. Let's over Reggie Jackson and Paul George. Now, you can't see this podcast. You're not reading something. So maybe cover your ears if you're if you don't want them to bleed. But Reggie Jackson and Eric Bledsoe have so far combined to shoot nine of 38 out of the pick and roll. That's a whopping 23.7%. I didn't uh, I should have calculated the effective field goal percentage for them. That's my bad. But nine of 38 in general on the pick and roll, no matter what shots you're taking, is that's not great, Bob. I I think. I'm concerned about the Clippers offense in general, just because yes, you, you don't have Kawhi. We don't know if he's going to come back this season. Um, their half court offense for parts of this year was actually better than I expected when they were hitting shots. We've seen a drop off in um, three point efficiency, but that's normalized a little bit over the past couple games. What's going to happen when Marcus Morris is healthy. There are just so many questions here, but they are 22nd in point scored per possession right now overall. And I don't, I'm not going to say that's their ceiling. They could get hot and certainly I'll play that, but like this, I think at this point, I've officially seen enough of the Clippers to say that I'd be shocked if they're a league average. Let's say, I'll say if they're higher than 14th or better in point score per possession at the end of the season, I'll be pretty fairly substantially surprised with that for an endorsement. Despite being three and four, by the way, they still have a positive net rating because their defense has been by and large fantastic. I've really just been impressed with how much better Terrence Mann has gotten on that side of the floor. So see, it's not all doom and gloom around these parts. The Los Angeles Lakers, Coming off their loss to Oklahoma City on Thursday night, I mean, my God, this is the Lakers have played the NBA's easiest schedule to date, yet they have the 13th best record, a bottom 15 net rating, have blown 26 and 19 point leads respectively against the Thunder. And now they won't have LeBron James for a bit as he recovers from his um, abdominal strain, um, rectus abdominis, whatever it was reported as. That was, it was just a super hilarious way to say it even if it was technically correct now that was not the stat that's just not an encouraging start to the season i think personally the best argument that could be made in favor of the russell westbrook trade is that he elevates both your floor and ceiling during the non-lebron minutes and games russ has played 202 minutes without lebron after that loss to okc the lakers have been outscored by eight points in that stretch that's not huge they're minus, they have a minus 1.9 net rating when Russ and AD play without LeBron. And the offense, both half court and overall, is roughly league average during that time. I guess that's fine. The defense has been has been rough during those stretches. Um, that should surprise no one. You need to be better than that because otherwise I don't see the advantage of trying to shoehorn this awkward fit between LeBron and Russ. You gave it wasn't even look, Russ was a plus six in that game against the Thunder that they lost, but one, he hurt them down the stretch but also acquiring him just fundamentally changed the makeup of their team. You um, got rid of two of your most important defenders in KCP and even Kyle Kuzma just became again, solid positionally 
there. And then you let Alex Caruso walk, another one of your five most important defenders. So you got rid of your three of your five most important defenders from last year's team, surrounded them with either questionable defenders or, or just role players, aging role players, whatever in general. You really upped the variance in your performance. We could look at the injuries they've dealt with today, including LeBron's absence. We can also say, hey, they haven't had Kendrick Nunn yet, Talon Horton Tucker yet, um, or Trevor Reza. If, if you're saying that, Trevor Reza is 36. He's 36. Talon Horton Tucker is only 20. And then, I mean, Kendrick Nunn is Kendrick Nunn. I do think he'll help their offense quite a bit. But, like, the fact that you're saying that is concerning. Oh, they haven't had Kendrick Nunn yet. Like, that's Kendrick is not going to be the, the player that pushes them over the top and make you feel good about the championship stock. I was a clown, I think, for, for picking their over here. Russ, over the past couple of years, has tended to get better as the season has worn on. The minutes in Washington without Beal still weren't good, but he did play better last year. And then even in Houston, they eventually got rid of playing a big altogether where Los Angeles is attempting to play two bigs at once. And sometimes one of those bigs is DeAndre Jordan for some reason. There are different challenges that pose there. This is the stretch that matters most, though, because to me, this is why you would have Russell Westbrook is for these LeBron absences, whether it's maintenance out of pure precaution or legitimate injury that you're concerned about. The Memphis Grizzlies, one of the most watchable teams in basketball. They did not make the top of my league pass rankings, but they clearly should have, even if my heart breaks a little bit for Jaron Jackson Jr. There is so many different ways I could go here. Um, I wanted to focus on Desmond Bain, but we've actually talked a lot about him on this podcast. We've also talked a lot about John Morant's improvement. Uh, where you just sort of look at his shooting efficiency upticks from, I mean, like like everywhere at this point, just a more of a multi-level threat than than he has ever been since entering the NBA. And so some of the things to look at here, this is not a huge part of his game, these one-on-one situations, but I do think it sort of illustrates like how much more dangerous he's gotten. Among everyone who has finished at least 20 ISO possessions this season, John Morant leads everyone in Point scored per possession at 1.37. Again, small part of his game, albeit slightly larger than last year, accounting for 12.4% of his plays. KD is second at this point in one point at 1.36 points scored per possession in isolation. Just a wildly high number, even for eight games into the season. John Morant is shooting 67% at the rim. That's a career high. Shooting 53% between four and 15 feet. That's a career high. He's only shooting 12% on long mid-range jumpers but like those are not those account for five percent of his shots i think or something um negligible and then he's shooting he's shooting i think he's only taking like yeah three of five on corner threes he's at 35 percent on above the break threes 12 of 34 career high 38 percent from three overall if those numbers sustain and the biggest outlier seems like the short mid-range game the, the floater game even though he's always sort of had that like this is an every level scorer right now. This isn't just a, a budding star. This is someone making the mega star turn, the all NBA staple turn. It's been a joy to watch. And I think they need him to play like this. Even when you have Bain and even Melton shooting so well, Jaron Jackson Jr. just has not given you a ton. And the, and the Grizzlies defense um, has been, I mean, pretty much dog shit. And John Moran is, is a part of that, but man, what he's doing on offense is, is just an incredible so far. The Miami heat, I wanted to, they're confusing. Their offense is seventh in the league. And I was just trying to, I don't necessarily understand it. And we are prone to these substantive swings of this early in the year when you go from game to game. They are 30th in the share of their shots that come at the rim, 29th in the share of their shots that come as above the break threes. And they're shooting under 30% on corner threes right now. Yet they have a top seven offense after, even after that loss to Boston on Thursday. It helps that they're third in free throw attempt rate. 
and offensive rebounding percentage. They're also, this is, I guess, the main one, but, and this is a team that does not play especially huge, but they're sixth in putback plays created per 100 misses, sixth, and they're fourth in points per play in those situations. And so I think it helps that you have a, a PJ Tucker type, even a Marquise Morris type that are going to box out, even if you're not always going to see them grab, grab rebounds. Um, having Kyle Lowry there just, just really helps too. So something to monitor there, but I, I think you want to get to a point where you're seeing them. I don't know if they need to reach the rim more just because of how pure of a brute force Jimmy Butler is. I, I want to see them take more above the breakthroughs. Like they have the personnel to do it there with, with Kyle Lowry, or you're going to need them to hit more of their corner threes, but still have a top seven offense. And so if, if it's working, it, it's working, but I'm going to be looking at sort of the, the putback situation for them. And look, I mean, when you sort of con- compare that to them last year, when you looked at how their offense was, was generated, like they weren't this um, super elite team in that area. I, I don't believe, and I should have pulled those numbers before uh, recording this, but that's just, this could be an outlier to date. Um, but again, Miami's offense just, it, it's had some really high highs. They, all of a sudden started, they were cold from three and then all of a sudden they were making a ton of their threes and then they weren't as great against Boston. But yeah, I mean, so looking at this, I did just pull it up. They were um, 29th in plays created per 100 misses last year. And then they were just um, 29th in points per, per miss. So this is, it's not like this, I don't say this wholesale change, but they are doing a better job um, of cleaning up their misses or turning those into opportunities and actually converting on them than they were last year. And that plus their free throw attempt rate has been just a, a great crux for their offense because I don't, I don't know if we've seen the peak of it yet, but I also think you look at this team and think, okay, yeah, Duncan Robinson should shoot better. Maybe Marquise Moore shoots a little bit better. I'm talking specifically from beyond the arc, but we know that, We've already seen Jimmy Butler's negligible three-point volume um, crater in accuracy. He was above 37%. Now he's like at 18 or, or 23%, excuse me. So you do look at this team and think, yeah, there, there could be some touch-and-go stuff going on from beyond the arc. And so this almost needs to sustain, in my mind, if they want to be a top-10 offense. It might not even matter because their defense is just going to be such a freaking hellscape for opponents to deal with that they're still going to be a really good team. I think it's been clear thus far that if everyone stays healthy – we all collectively, or most of us, probably underestimated what they were going to be able to do. The Minnesota Timberwolves, a lot's been made of their seventh-ranked defense. Um, they continue to force turnovers at astounding rates, or I should say that opponents are committing turnovers at astounding rates. Um, they are first in opponent turnover rate. Opponents are turning the ball over 19.9% of their possessions, including 24.3% of their pick and roll possessions when looking specifically at the ball handlers and then 18% of their ISO possessions. Both of those are the highest marks in the league. So the Timberwolves lead the league in opponent turnover percentage um, on pick and roll ball handlers and isolations. Is that going to hold? I think their defense overall is going to regress to a different normal opponent so far are shooting 29% above the break threes. I know above the break three point shooting is down so far. Relative to last year, the average this season is 33.9%. So 29% is still a fairly huge uh, outlier uh, there. So, yeah, something to monitor. If Minnesota continues to be this elite defensively all year, though, I mean, absolutely kudos to them. And when you watch them defend, I think Anthony Edwards has definitely been more alert. I think you can say the same about Carl Anthony Towns. Um, 
Jade McDaniels is is just super is is just really good. I don't know what else you're going to say, but just so sound on defensive end. I don't look at them; they could be active. I just don't look at them as a top tier defensive team. But again, if you're going to be able to force or get opponents to commit turnovers at at these clips, you're going to be in somewhat good shape. The Bucks. I don't know what to focus on. The Bucks. Here's the real stat that freaking matters: Brooke Lopez, Drew Holiday, and Dante Divincenzo have combined to play 71 minutes this season. Chris Middleton's now out with COVID-19. I can't read into their slow start beyond that. However, uh, they are shooting 30.9% on wide open threes this year. That's the second worst mark in the league. They hit 40.9% on those same looks last year, which ranked seventh. And so, again, if you have a healthy Drew and Brook Lopez and even Dante Givincenzo once he actually plays this season, I know he hasn't played. That was just sort of the point, looping him into 71 minutes. That should go up, but, I mean, damn. This, I didn't want to include it because there hasn't been enough of a sample and they don't commit a ton of turnovers, but you, the Bucks are allowing, this is per unpredictable, 0.87 points per possession after they commit a turnover. Um, hell yes. That's, that would be my, my one like comment on that. That's just, I, that's an outrageously low number. The Spurs are second, by the way, in that category. That's not their stat at 0.94 points allowed per possession after committing a turnover. The New Orleans Pelicans. I don't know what to make of this team without Zion. I do think he helps them quite a bit. I still thought they'd be better than this without him. When you look at the, you know, I don't, they might get worse defensively somehow. And they are, I believe they're bottom five still right now. That was the last time I checked. I didn't even look at their defense, but uh, because it wasn't there. Yeah. They're 27th in points allowed per possession, but they're 27th in offense, 29th in half court offensive efficiency. I just thought that they could be better than that without Zion. I guess not. They really need him to put pressure on the rim, which I guess makes sense when you sort of look at their guard rotation. They are dead last in accuracy around the rim at 57.2%. Devontae Graham's never been a great finisher around the rim. Uh, Thomas Adoransky just doesn't even have like a a real role on this team, it feels like. I do feel as if Wanakiel Alexander-Walker, in theory, can be that player. He's so inconsistent, and I still just feel like he, excuse me, he suffers from bailing out early on a lot of his drives, and so you just don't have that organic player. It's even sort of the the same story with Brandon Ingram, not someone who's going to prefer to get get to his in between spots, and he's been really good for the Pelicans when he's been healthy. I'm just saying they need that raw uh, raw rim pressure presence, and it's not even really Jonas Valanciunas for them either if you're looking for like a conventional um role man yeah you can mash do is like a lot of his work is going to come in the post there Kyra lewis jr not that guy either also not getting a ton of minutes he is averaging more minutes per game than um sadaransky at this point who has appeared in i think he's appeared in only four games this season i should have brought that up but they need zion back in a big way he's two to three weeks away from having a timetable is basically what it sounds like so things might get worse before they get better they should get better because they I'm assuming they won't be without Brandon Ingram until the the end of time there uh, as he deals with his hip injury. But yeah, this is a team that's worse than I would have expected on offense, even without Zion Williamson. The New York Knicks. So let's start this with the caveat that last year's most used starting five, and it bounced around quite a bit, was a minus 4.4 points per 100 possessions. And they just had a stellar bench. That's the case again this year. Their bench is second in point differential per 100 possessions right now behind only Utah. However, the starting five of Kemba, Evan Fournier, RJ Barrett, Julius Randle, and Mitchell Robinson has played 340 possessions 
That's the second most used lineup in the entire league for cleaning glass behind only Denver's starting five. The Knicks is starting five that was posting a minus 10.4 net rating of the 11 lineups in the league that have logged at least 185 possessions. They're one of only two with a negative net rating. Phoenix's starting five is the other team. That starting five has gone through it. They struggled last year in the season and they struggled again this year to start the season. Again, the Knicks's bench is so good that maybe this doesn't matter. Uh, the root cause here is they've been fine on offense. I wouldn't say elite, but they have a 121.2 defensive rating when they're on the court. Will that get better for the Knicks starting five? I question it. Opponents are shooting 40% from three. That should normalize. They did get lucky as a three-point defense last year to some extent. Um, opponents are also shooting 66.3% at the rim against this lineup. So maybe there is room for improvement there, but I just don't know by how much. Julius Randle's like an okay to good defender now. RJ Barrett's a really good defender. Mitchell Robinson is, is really good as well. But you have Kemba and Fournier um, at the one and the two. Even if Kemba tries, like he's going to be able to be screened pretty easily and teams will go after him. And then I, I'm just curious as to whether uh, they have a, enough guys in that lineup that are going to be adept at attacking mismatches at the other end for this unit to become a net positive as the season goes on. Looking at talent, I don't think they're minus 10.4 net rating bad. And we're dealing with such a small sample size here. I think they've been outscored by like eight points in total during their time on the court. So it's not like, or it was 18, whatever it was. But this is something to monitor. You don't want to be that reliant on your bench, even if you do have depth to spare. I don't know what the change would be, to be honest with you, if you wanted to make a tweak, but this would definitely be something to consider. I'm looking more at closing games. Um, How are you going to, change how, how you do that and i think there's been some you know there have been mainstays and they're they're cr- we're dealing with so few crunch time sample size with them but that's a stupid thing to say but i'm just curious as to how this lineup progresses or if it even sticks at this point because you want to start games um stronger than they have been even though they've blown quite a bit of few leads they just have such a strong bench even with emmanuel quickly struggling maybe maybe they're just okay going this route the oklahoma city thunder I tweeted this. Um, Shakespeare Alexander is shooting 52.2% on step back threes. That's 12 of 23. And that seems low. I also know that it's early, um, but just for some perspective, he made 15 step back threes all of last year and hit them at a 29.4% clip. He played in barely half the season because the, the Thunder shut him down with um, that plantar fascia injury. But the fact that he has played like play 35 fewer games so far this season, whatever that number is, and has already hit um, just three fewer step back threes. Wow. He is so good. Just the, the sidesteps, like going to his right, uh, just absolutely admire the Lakers also hit a logo three in that game on Thursday. Talk about a flex and like having the green light 16 seconds left on the shot clock, a minute and 20 left in the game. The thunder are ahead by three. So naturally you might want to slow it down. Shea's like, no, throws it up from the logo. It's in, by the way, and they they win the game. Also, if you care, he leads the league in the share of his possessions that come in isolation. Uh, 36.8% uh, of his uh, possessions are coming, offensive possessions are coming in isolation right now. That's not really surprising when you just look at the talent on the Thunder roster. Even if you like Josh Giddy's passing, he's not providing enough of it um, to Shea for Shea to do anything other than basically create for himself all the damn time. The Orlando Magic, this one is still, I've been tracking this all season, and this is with the numbers that you're about to see are with regression caked in from their latest loss. 
Orlando's starting five of Cole Anthony, Jalen Suggs, Franz Wagner, Mo Bamba, and Wendell Carter Jr. have played 226 possessions together, through which they have a 107.5 offensive rating, like whatever, around average, and a 93.8 defensive rating for a net rating of 13.8, which is, which is great, in case anyone's wondering. Um, and they're shooting collectively 41.5% on above the break threes. And so like, this is an offense that's not even really super elite statistically right now, but shooting that well on above the break threes. You also haven't gotten like Jalen Suggs has struggled to start the season been very up and down. Um, Wagner's been good. Um, Bomba has been solid at points. Same with Wendell Carter Jr. Cole Anthony's just been absolutely molten at points this year. Just not a lineup I would have expected to really work. And I don't, I'm not a fan of the Obama Wendell Carter Jr. fit in theory. I didn't think Wagner could play the three for long stretches. He's been better on defense than I expected. There's more of like a, I, I say it, uh, there's more of a fuck you to his game than it, than it appears. He's good at sort of creating separation with his shoulder or going through guys. Then, of course, you, you have his, his shooting and he knows how to move without the ball as well, too. I'm just curious to see whether this lineup, I would imagine it doesn't, but let's see if this lineup remains one of the most effective high-volume lineups in basketball because, hey, that's what it is right now. Where to focus on Philly? So much about their season is ass-backwards. Um, some of the offensive numbers are very encouraging, but then you watch their games and you get discouraged. You're dealing with Embiid's health. He did play on Thursday night and then went over the Pistons, though, but it took them a while to pull away from the Pistons. Let's just focus on Seth Curry, who was birthed in a volcano, 103 players this season have attempted at least 20 off-the-dribble jumpers. Seth Curry leads this group in effective field goal percentage at 65.4. He's also shooting 64.7% on his drives for anybody that cares. You could pretty much find whatever offense is split at this point. It's going to favor Seth Curry. Just lava hot on actual literal fire to start this season. 65.4% effective, 65.4 effective field goal percentage on pull-up jumpers. That is brain bending to me. I am curious just because by virtue of the volume, if he keeps this up for like another week or two, there has to be some, does he deserve to be in the most improved player conversation? I know he's older than we typically like to go. And he's not someone you look at and say, Hey, he's going to make the, the star turn because he is, he's 31 but just by virtue of the volume and having to rely more on the pull-up jumper, I will say just, I don't know. You can't rely on him too much defensively, although I don't think he's as bad as some people think. Uh, I would also say that like, you just can't trust him to, to run the offense, kind of looking at how uncomfortable he is making passes, um, certain passes in the half court that could work against him. But the dude is having himself a season and his, his efficiency on pull-up jumpers helps illustrate that better than everything. There were so much negative things I could, focus on with the Phoenix Suns on the court. Forget about off the court. We already talked about the Robert Sarver stuff. I decided to focus on something that was just a little bit more interesting slash mostly positive. This part is not positive, but Mikael Bridges leads this team in points per touch at 0.422. Not super high there. His touches overall are slightly up. They've actually dropped over the past um, couple of games. So just a dude who remains hyper-efficient. And you can just look at that when you break down his you know play type data. There have been 116 players to finish at least 15 transition possessions. Uh, Mikael Bridges ranks sixth in effective field goal percentage in transition, 85.7 effective field goal percentage in transition. Is anyone wondering who, who ranks number one in effective field goal percentage in, in transition? It's Seth Curry at 106.3% um, effective field goal percentage in transition. He's shooting 13 of 16 in transition right now. A good chunk of those 
have been threes and he's drawing shooting fouls on 10.5% of his um, transition possessions at the moment and is scored on just 79% of his transition possessions. Just that two points per transition possession right now for Stephen Cur- uh, Seth Curry. Maybe that should have been the stat, but that just feels like blatantly not sustainable, even though transition is like 18.9 points, 18.9% of the possession he's, he's using. Again, Seth Curry birthed in a volcano, which I guess makes some sense knowing who his his brother is in, in Seth Curry. Mikhail Bridges is also 8 of 10 of cuts so far, and this is pretty incredible too. 26 of 29 at the rim for 89.7%. 89.7% at the rim is, is really, really good. That's shooting about what LaMarcus Aldridge is shooting on long twos this year. That's still wild. More low-hanging fruit as we get to the Portland Trailblazers. Damian Lillard shooting. Like it, it has to be, he picked up for a couple games and then dropped back off. He's at 23.4% from three this year. He shot three of 14 on catch and shoot triples. That's 21.4%. And 14 of 62 on pull-up triples, 22.6% there. His 53.3% clip inside three feet will be the third lowest of his career and the absolute lowest since his sophomore season in 2013, 2014. The Blazers have a top five offense anyway, but will it sustain if he's shooting like this? I would say no, because I would assume Norman Powell is going to cool off it at some point. He's been really good for them this year. Dame tweeted four games at this point. It's longer than that, but four games does not erase basically a decade of general incandescence. I'm totally with him. We are getting to a point though, where now, sorry, for the Blazers specifically, we're eight games into the season. 10% of the season's gone so far. Again, you're fifth in points scored per possession, so maybe it doesn't matter. But if your defense is still going to hover around the bottom five in efficiency, yeah, you still need molten hot dame. And I also just, in general, even if you can stick right here and your record normalizes and more so meets with your net rating, um, they do have a positive net rating at the moment. It's 15th in the league. Talk about overwhelmingly average. If you just want to maintain a top five offense, I think you're going to need Damian Lillard to shoot better all season than... 23 something percent from from deep and that's definitely going to be something to monitor because if he just has a season like an offseason where it's this off i can't imagine it again eight games so let's move on from it but those are those are numbers to monitor and it's not just the three-point stuff it's just finishing it he's getting to the rim more often too he's just not finishing there as well so something definitely worth worth watching the kings more negativity here De'Aaron fox um came out of his funk a little bit in the kings wednesday night victory and talk to media for the first time in a few games, I believe. He is just having himself not a great start to the season. His shot selection still just remains all sorts of off. Um, he's turning the ball over a lot. His handle needs to get better. Like he just, and maybe it's, you know, exacerbated right now because he's going through a slump, but his decision-making, like it just looks like he can't even hold on to the ball. It's not even just making all these bad passes, which he has made, but it feels like he can't hold on to the ball. 75 players have finished at least 50 drives. De'Aaron Fox's turnover rate, 11.4, ranks 69th among those 75 players. That is high. He's also shooting under 41% on those drives to boot for anyone who cares. He's up to 62.5% at the foul line, um, by far and away a career career low right now. He's gone from taking 9.8 free throws per 100 possessions last year to 6.5, with 4% fewer of his shots coming at the rim. That's it's a drop-off, but is it enough to, I guess, plus the officiating to justify that? It does, of the Kings games I've watched, Darren Fox feels too focused on trying to get calls that he's not getting and needs to kind of pull his head out of that sphere. 
And then the final thing here is, and I, look, this has been a, a career long battle for him is pull up jumper, but he had an operable step back three last year. So I wanted to watch the progress of his pull up jumper. 90 players have attempted at least 25 pull up jumpers this season. De'Aaron Fox is a 32 effective field goal percentage, which ranks 86th out of those 90 players. Okay, this one was fun. We knew the Spurs were going to be a little bit more frenetic than they were in years past this season, but they are first for unpredictable. First, just ahead of Golden State in average time per possession. That is bonkers. That is absolutely completely bonkers. And this is out of character for them. If you look at their ranks in average possession time, the past decade, essentially, last year, 21st, 1920, 15th, 1819, 24th, 1718, dead last, 16, 17, 25th, 15, 16, 27th, 14, 15, 18th, 13, 14th, 11th. And then the last time they were in the top 10 was 2012, 2013. They ranked 10th in average possession time. They're first right now. Hell yeah, Spurs. The offense isn't always pretty. Lonnie Walker has been efficient as, as hell this year. But this team is, it's, it's, it's like frisky. It's frantic there. I have enjoyed what I've seen of the Spurs this season, even though the end result is just not always good. And it's like DeJounte Murray's having a good season, but you still want him to be more efficient, even though he's having a good season. Looks like he has more quality control over the offense. They need another creator for sure. But again, they're playing this fast and that just might be their ticket in part among other things. Like, and they're still, they're playing pretty good defense this year. Um, they've been close to league average on defense, but they've done a good job, like even getting back and keeping up with opponents. Something has to give you need to be above average in, in one offense or defense to have a real shot. And they're two and six to start. I think even if they're going to stay this bad, like this, this is clearly going to be a team that should still be you know, modestly entertaining the Toronto Raptors. This might be low hanging fruit too. Um, if you want a Delano Banton stat, he's the only player on this team shooting better than 50% on drives. They need Siakam back from his uh, left shoulder injury that he had surgery on. I think it was a torn left labrum. I did see a report. I can't remember who it's from, so I apologize. Maybe it was just a team announcement that he's expected to be back sometimes in the next two weeks. Toronto's half-court offense really needs him. It was like sort of floating around a good area for a while, but it's dropped off even amid their winning streak. They're 25th in points scored, points scored per 100 half-court plays. They just need someone to put like more pressure on the defense. It's not, you know, it's not a Scotty Barnes that's going to do that. It's not a Fred Van Fleet. His game can stall out before the basket. Siakam is going to give them their best chance at that. And no, I don't think he's the perfect solution, but I also think he's become underrated in NBA Twitter circles, whatever let's call it, because he just hasn't shot well from three um, for a couple seasons. And it's really, he put together a, a great, year last year while he was healthy and, and really upped his percentage on drives. I thought his spins to nowhere became spins to somewhere. And he looked a little bit more comfortable in that role. Again, probably still someone that you can fluster. Who knows what it'll look like when he hasn't played basketball in so long. But the Raptors team is, I, I said that they would finish top five in the East this year, I think was my prediction for this podcast. I'll, I'll stand by it because I'm stubborn and I don't like backing out of things this early. They're now six and three on a five game winning streak. They have the sixth best defense in the league. They're 18th in offensive efficiency overall, 29th in effective field goal percentage. I think Siakam just will wind up helping them there a ton. And so if they stay healthy once they get him back and should he stay healthy with, with everyone and just be, even just be the player he was last season where he just wasn't the most reliable guy even when attacking the basket and certainly not from the outside their ceiling becomes exponentially higher and there's someone who can party crash a lot of discussions 
in the East and throw some teams, the overall hierarchy for a world. The Utah Jazz, moving right along. This is, they got, when Rudy Gobert was off the court last year, let me start again for the 18th time. They won the Rudy Gobert minutes. They were plus 1.9 points per 100 possessions. They had a 159 defensive rating. Opponent shot 66% on, at the rim. This year so far, we're only talking about a 247 possession sample size. The Jazz have a plus 19.19 net rating without Gobert and a 97.1 defensive rating. I think Hassan Whiteside's helped them out. It's just a presence around the rim a lot more than people expected. Opponents are shooting 58.3% at the rim versus 66.6% at the rim when Gobert's off the court from last year. That's a big difference. Maybe it climbs up a little bit, but it feels like they're better built to navigate those defensive minutes without Rudy Gobert. Also noteworthy, while people talk about how Rudy Gobert gets played off the court in the playoffs, talk about disinformation. The Jazz were murdered without Gobert in the playoffs last year, minus 10.9 rating when he was off the court with a 130.7 defensive rating, a smaller sample size. But that just becomes important is you need to upkeep those minutes. And yeah, there might be certain matchups where um, it's more problematic for Gobert than normal, but I still think it, it will more so come down to the defense that's in front of him. They, they feel still one more athletic um, or just laterally quick defender short um, of of being something you kind of need Donovan Mitchell to be that guy, even though he still just hasn't been great on defense. I do think it helps them for the re- their regular season dominance at, at least. And then definitely once they get to the playoffs that their defense feels better built to navigate Rudy Gobert's absence. And that's important. You're always going to be better with him. He's a three-time defensive player of the year. That being said, you're a team that's built. I mean, even when you look at them on offense, like aside from Donovan Mitchell, no one's really built to cook mismatches so you don't necessarily have that conventional element and then defensively i guess maybe you don't have the option to downsize i'm not even saying that like we haven't seen them go small uh this year when you maybe part of that is because rudy go rudy gay excuse me has missed time but regardless you don't have athletic wing defenders or enough of them and so like that can compromise your defense in certain instances so you just need to be able to control and tread water in other different areas Winning the non-Gobert minutes on defense is absolutely huge for this team, is my overall point there. Finally, let's move on to the Washington Wizards. I've been pleasantly surprised by by their defense. Um, They are 12th in points allowed uh, per possession this this season. That's perking in the glass, and it's outside of, of garbage time. You can talk about what luck goes into that when we're so early into the season. Um, they are allowing opponents to shoot almost 69% at the rim. So it's not like they're getting lucky there. Opponents have also shot under 30% on above the break three. So there's definitely a little bit of luck caked into there. But but overall, when you look at this team, what has what really surprised me is they are second in points allowed per 100 plays off of live rebounds. So they're missing a shot. They're They're getting back there. They're also just in all transition, they're third in points allowed per 100 plays in transition. So they've done a nice job of, of that as well. I think Denny Avi has been better defensively for this year for them. Bradley Beal's probably been a touch better. I think having a Spencer Dinwiddie helps. Uh, a Daniel Gafford who's, who's going to get back certainly helps them. How Neto has been a monster for them this season at both ends of the floor, to be honest with you. I'm curious to see whether that could sustain and – I know that they're not, you know, they're not defending a ton of the time in these situations off of, you know, live rebounds or, or in transition. They've actually done a better job of dissuading teams from getting in transition, which might speak to them um, 
why they're so good defensively in the first place, but you also go over to um, unpredictable. They're seventh in points allowed per possession after making their own shot. And so like, this isn't just, there are too many categories, subsections where it seems like the wizards are kind of per, performing up to snuff or better for it to be an entire fluke. Are, are they a top 12 defensive team on the season? Will they get better or worse once, once Rui Hachimura comes back? I, I honestly don't know. And then, yeah, there has to be like the, what level of luck is, is caked in there. They've struggled offensively with the Dinwiddie Beal, Caldwell Pope, Kuzma Gafford lineup, but they have a, that group has a 95 defensive rating. Uh, opponents are shooting under 29% again on above the break threes there and only 60.6% at the rim. Uh, and, and <laughs> this way they're shooting 13.3% against that lineup on short mid rangers, that four to 15 foot range. There probably is some, you know, fortuitous stuff happening here that will regress to a mean, but Washington might be better than this squad that I feel like on this podcast, I mean, we assume they would just be average ish, maybe a little bit better. If they're going to be that good defensively, uh, I would argue that they have room to improve on, on the offensive side of the floor. That's not a spicy take at all. They're 17th in points left per possession, 21st in effective field goal percentage. Dinwiddie's not the most efficient player, but he can get the line. Bradley Beal is going to probably string together some, some better nights. So there, this could be a team that just poses more of a problem for the Eastern Conference in, in general if that offense picks up, because I think apparently, I guess their defensive ceiling is just way higher than anyone of us expected. And so what happens if you're in a situation where Bradley Beal is shooting better than 24.5% from three or Kyle Kuzma is shooting better than 31.4% from three um, or Denny Avdi is better than 29.4%. And so some of those three balls stop, start falling. Um, Davis Bertans at 33.3% from three. And so a lot of those are numbers that you could see climbing. How old Neto at 20%? Uh, I don't know, but he's at, Herlunt has been fantastic for the Wizards this season. At any rate, that does it. That's one stat or a collection of stat for each NBA team that I'm watching until the end of the season or, or at least moving forward, just stuff that I've noticed now. Hope you enjoyed this one. If you've stuck with me this long, please, please, pretty please with sugar on top, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're getting it. If you're a first-time listener, consider throwing us that permanent subscription. We're not normally this numbers heavy. Like We do try and get into the details of the actual game. We run mailbags and everything. Uh, religious listener religious listeners know all about it until next time though leave with the shout out to one the only dallas mavericks secret weapon frank nilakina